Welcome to My Dream Big Club Show, where we look to inspire and motivate you to dream big. And I'm your host, Sean Phillips. As entrepreneurs, we always have a hustle. Come on. I remember flipping CDs in school for some extra cash and then taking those earnings and helping someone launch their mini record label. Now, it takes a lot of courage to be an entrepreneur, but quite frankly, anyone can be an entrepreneur. However, it takes a certain type of person to be a successful one. As entrepreneurs, we love to work hard because we know that a little bit of sweat pays off in the long run. Our DNA is one part imagination, one part necessity, and two parts persistence. Being an entrepreneur is who we are. For John Henry, he took his hustle and built it into a million dollar business. John Henry is a serial entrepreneur. He built his one man dry cleaning service into a million dollar business, servicing Hollywood film sets before he moved on to start two other companies. In this episode, John shows us how execution and persistence will pay off and that entrepreneurship is the greatest equalizer. Yeah, I mean, to me, entrepreneurship is the great equalizer. So it's how you can take any hand that you were dealt and neutralize the situation, in my opinion, because entrepreneurship allows you to escape out of the framework that you are valued by your time. Entrepreneurship is like one plus one equals 11. (laughs) You know, you can bypass a lot of the system that you know, we can question why it exists. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, certainly been the case for me, been able to level the playing field for me. And now it's more so about creating something that can level the playing field for others. Tune in to hear the successful serial entrepreneur, John Henry, show us how to leverage goodwill and hard work for business success. Let's go. Hey, John, how you doing, man? What's up, brother? How you living? Doing well, doing well, man. We're excited to have you on the show today, man. Thank you very much for having me. It's a great honor. Great, great. So uh, we like to kick it off with our with our question of how would others describe you as an individual? Probably a, a go-getter, man. <laughs> yeah, sir. That's all I've done my whole life, pretty much, is defied odds. All right. So just go get it, right? Um, so I grew it. up in the... Yeah. In the Grew up in the New York area? Grew up in New York. So from your experience, I guess, I know, you know, just kind of reading up about you, um, mom was a custodian at a fluent area, and then your father was a master presser. So I guess in what they were doing, did they, because you're a serial entrepreneur yourself, but was that something that was instilled in you as you were growing up? I wouldn't say, no, I wouldn't say... um... That entrepreneurship was instilled in me, but I would say that, um, you know, that go-getter mentality was instilled in me. Um, and I think that my parents probably pushed me away from being an f- entrepreneur because there's so much, uh, there's uh, an incredible lack of financial stability and they probably wanted the opposite for me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that the DNA of an entrepreneur is necessity and, you know, imagination and, uh, uh, and being proactive, um, taking initiative. And yeah, if you can combine those, those uh, certainly not a lot of entrepreneurs are entrepreneurs because of necessity, I would say, but, um, necessity is a good kick in the ass to get it, you know, to get, (laughs) to get it going. Uh, and that was the case. I think that, and that's, I think that that is a lot of the case, a lot of the time for 
communities of color. You know, we don't end up in this because like it's a cool thing that TechCrunch writes about. You you know, you end up in it because you got to make money somehow and you can't stand a job. So, you know, leaves you with the option to make your own sales pretty much. Yeah. So that's you just kind of like making a way. But so I guess growing up, though, did you have your little hustle? Whether Because me, when I was in high school, my hustle was selling CDs, right? To the point where I was counting money one day. But that's like, wait, what are you doing? Right. It was, it was one of those things like, <laughs> I'm making sure he's doing something legal. But um, any hustles that kind of taught you about that early entrepreneur um, kind of journey? Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, definitely did a lot of things along the way. Uh, I sold Livestrong bracelets. Um, okay. You remember those? Yeah, <laughs> of course yeah. I, I remember would, those. I used, I used to go buy them for um, three for a pack of uh, three for five dollars, and then I would sell each of them for three dollars. So uh, for every five bucks, I'd make nine. Not bad. Uh, Four dollar profit, and then it would. Yeah, yeah. I, so I did that. I used to race, so like like run. Uh, and then I started racing for money, and then I started racing my friends for cash. Oh wow! So I, I built up a little squad, and you know, shit like that. Um, and then once I hoarded the cash, I used to loan it out as well with interest. <laughs> as the little loan shark, I my mom because she was a custodian, she would bring home the expired snacks that they would throw out. She would bring it to me, and then I would sell them in my school um, for fifty cents for the chips and a dollar for the M and M's and stuff like that. So. Def, definitely, uh, as I look back, definitely had a lot of little, little hustles that I think um, helped me develop that sales. I think mentality. Yeah, I also people the uh, those dates are just suggested dates, but my wife does not uh, like to go by that. <laughs> um, so, 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 what exactly does I guess entrepreneurship mean to you? I know you mentioned the the fact about necessity, imagination, um, being proactive, but like the importance of it. Like, what does that mean to you? Um, and being an entrepreneur. Yeah. I mean, to me, entrepreneurship is the great equalizer. So it's how you can take any hand that you were dealt and neutralize the situation, in my opinion, because entrepreneurship allows you to escape out of the framework that you are valued by your time. Because otherwise, you have to climb this existing framework and and you have to in order to increase your value, you have to increase the time that you spend not only at the job, but also the time that you're in your field. So it's like a one in, one out, one in, one out. Entrepreneurship is like one plus one equals 11. <laughs> you know, you can bypass a lot of the system that, you know, we can question why it exists. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, certainly been the case for me been able to level the playing field for me. And now it's more so about creating something that can level the playing field for others. Yeah. So I, th- I think you're, so your your biggest, for those of you that aren't familiar with the story, but I guess your, your biggest entrepreneur endeavor, or I should say your first entrepreneur endeavor of a good magnitude was uh, being, uh, having your own dry cleaner um, business that you put together um, in, in New York, right? Yep. In New York, um, working as a doorman and, uh, got put onto this idea to, uh, you know, one of the residents has had a dry cleaner himself and said, Hey man, I'll give you access. If you just go convince people to, to give you their clothes. So I was like a middleman pretty much between the customer and the dry cleaner. And I would effectively, you know, charge the customer more than I got charged and make the difference. Um, so yeah, that was, I mean, I did that 10 years. I'm 28 now. I did that when I was 18. So I, I dropped out of school to do that. Um, and I just started doing it and I did that 
literally taking the subway in New York and lugging sacks of laundry myself um, and recruiting my brothers when I had no cash and lugging not only the dirty sacks, but then the clean laundry back and forth, like actually, you know, uh, and did that. And then I made enough to get a whip and then I would whip around all day. I see you spent 14 hours in the car by myself, just like waking up at 6 a.m., going to grab the runs from the productions, bring it to the cleaners, go back, maybe have a little break to eat, drive out, look for film productions, knock on doors. Hey, are you looking for anyone to, to sell your shit? Da, 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 da. Uh, and then the, the clothes would be ready. I would go grab it. I would go and try to beat the rush hour, deliver as much of the clothes as I could, and then we'll sit in traffic on the way back with the clothes, the new clothes. So I would drop off the clean clothes and then pick up the new old clothes, lug that in a shopping cart that has uh, pretty much stolen from a local um, supermarket. I had a little shopping cart that I would load up all the dirty laundry bags and park my car on the street, which is very competitive in New York City, go walk to my shopping cart, bring it back to the car, load the car up with the dirty laundry, bring it to my project building where I live, go up the 10 flights uh, in the elevator with the shopping cart and unload it in my apartment where I live with my mom, dad, brother, uh, and other brother and cousin and their daughter and their husband. And it was a one bedroom and on like empty out all of the dirty clothes in my living room area, which was also doubled as a bedroom. And by that time I got home, it was probably 8 PM. I'd gotten up at six. I would maybe eat for 30, 45 minutes and then, uh, and then start tagging all the garments. Cause I had like a little point of sale system in my living room off my laptop and just tag all the garments. Uh, and it would probably take me a couple hours. Um, so I would finish my day at 11 PM, go to bed and try and wake up at five so I could load it all up back in the bags, back in the shopping cart, down the elevator to the car, load up the whip and then take the whip to the dry cleaner, try to be there at 6 AM. So I, my clothes could be the first one in the queue. And then I would start my day all over again, go out, knock on film trucks. When it was, when the clothes were ready from that, I had just dropped off, go grab them, deliver them, pick up the old over and over. And over. I did that for, uh, I want to say a good year and a half by myself over and over and over and over. I was 18 years old, just over and over and over and over and over. Then I made enough money to buy another van and hire a driver. So then I started like, outsourcing the tasks that I was doing the most. And then I got another employee who helped me pick up the phones. And then I got, you know, a little storefront 400 square feet. So I didn't have to do it for my apartment. And, you know, we just kind of kept growing from there. Um, so that was the roots, man. That was, uh, <laughs> that's some real shit right there. <laughs> <laughs> just looking at you, right. I mean, obviously coming from, you know, humble beginnings, but then just, just, just the light in your eyes where it's just like, man, I used to do all this. And, you know, and I make it, I made it happen. So I think from a sense like that, right, I'm trying to connect to where everybody's in a different stage in their entrepreneurial uh, journey, right? And it's that stage where at one point you're just like, damn, am I still trying to do this? Or am I doing the right thing? And then, you know, maybe it's a, a big sale, whatever, that, that kind of gives you that, that boost, right? Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. I know you have a quote, right? Where you, or, you know, it's very common too, but saying $1 in your own system is better than $1,000 in someone else's. Uh, so try to bring, some, bring more context into that. Yeah, 100%, man. Um, yeah, I just felt like, personally, I felt like the ability to conceive something in your mind, put a little sweat equity into it, and 
bring it to fruition and then convince someone to pay you for that thing, it, it was less about the monetary amount that you netted and more about the fact that it instills into you a confidence that you can pull from the unseen to the seen and, and have it yield some monetary value, which is the currency of being able to, to live and sustain your living. Um, that was powerful to me. It didn't matter that on one garment, I would make $4, you know, cause I always knew that there was potential to make, to sell, you know, to clean thousands of garments, let's say. Um, and we would end up cleaning thousands of garments and we would end up doing it for all the film and TV productions in New York city, which is kind of cool. But, um, that to me was worth more than like, if I had made 10 bucks from cleaning someone's dirty laundry, but I made a thousand bucks from clocking in and out. It's not that it's not to degrade the clocking in and out. It's more so that that value that you captured as a result of trading in your time was not something that you conceived originally. It was something that was crafted for you to slot into. And so it's almost like it flexes your mind muscle a little bit, your muscle of like creation, your creativity to conceive something new to you and, you know, bring it about. Um, although I will say just to draw some nuance to that, that I also found myself in work that was unfulfilling. Um, so that's why I think I had that attitude towards the job, but I do think that there is, there are a lot of fields that where people do feel very fulfilled and it's probably oftentimes more fruitful to be in a structured environment where you can just shine at doing what you do. So that's probably the nuance that I've added over the years as well, because like, you know, if you're a great, you know, media marketer or brander or film product, you know, producer, sometimes it's better to work in a team environment and just focus on what you do. So you don't have to worry about raising cash and profit loss, stuff like that. But all that to say, um, yeah, man, I mean, it, it's been a superpower for me to think up something from scratch, get a little GoDaddy domain, get a little Instagram handle. Like if you want to like actually make it tactical, you think of something, you get a GoDaddy domain. And I, before I get the domain, I look to make sure that it's available on every social platform, that same combination of words. I get it on all social platforms. I hold it before anyone in the public ever knows that I'm going to work on this thing. Like I did for Loop, my latest company. I went and checked it all, got the domain, slated all the thing. I was like, all right, bet. I'll be back to this. And then you know, you work with someone to come up with a little visual identity, you know, and, and, you know, and you layer it up, you layer it up. And before you know it, you have something that can be sold that you can literally say came from, uh, you know, a thought that you conceived in your mind. You know, I think that's powerful. I definitely want to talk to you more about that, that brand, the branding piece and the marketing aspect of it. Um, you did mention though, you know, the, the, the film industry and just to give people some context. Uh, I think Wolf of Wall Street, that was a, a big client of yours to be able to to help to do all the uh, costumes for that movie. Um, one thing, I guess, and I think it was from that, this deal, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, you said one of the, and you talked about the gratifying aspect of entrepreneurship and things that you're doing, but I believe from that job, right, you were able to bring those garments to your father to press. And that to you was just like a full circle. It was just like, you know, and you already mentioned, I, I can remember everyone that was living in the apartment that you mentioned, but just, <laughs> <laughs> just the fact that you were able to do that. And now it's like, Hey pops, like, this is what I'm able to do. And this is like a job that I have for you as well. Um, speak more about the gratifying aspect of that. hundred percent, man. Yeah. It was a special moment, you know? And, uh, 
yeah, to be, it was just uh, also I never planned to make a dry cleaner, you know, and it was like something that I was embarrassed and my dad did while I was growing up. And then it, you know, to have him then end up being the cornerstone of the venture. It's like the stone that the builder refused, you, you know, will always be the head cornerstone, like Bob Marley said. Um, it was just one of those moments where it was like, wow, this thing that I was embarrassed of is actually my father was the only reason why we were able to wow, beautifully deliver on the Wolf of Wall Street, which led to that guy saying, hey, you did a great job. There's a new account in town. If you get them, you're going to be okay for a long time. That was Boardwalk Empire. Then Person of Interest, then Law and Order, White Collar, Miss Spider-Man 2, Power, Ninja Turtles, Spike Lee, Mike Tyson. You know, we did a lot of shows, man, a lot. Um, and it all came from, honestly, that that initial load that my pops did for us. Um, so it was definitely, and, and he, yeah, and he got to eat too. Cause he, you know, I, as he didn't own the dry cleaner or anything, he was an employee at the dry cleaner, but me, I, I became a client of the dry cleaners cause I brought the garments there and I set lucrative terms because I knew that my pops would be the recipient. So yeah, my, my pops ate off that. I ate off that, you know, we all ate off that. So it was a trip, man. It was a trip. And, uh, I've been, those lessons and applying them ever since, you know, um, it's sometimes better to decrease your margin. I learned this in my first business. I didn't always do this, but in my first business, I remember I nickeled and dimed a lot of the vendors that I had because effectively, if I could just break it down quickly. So there's two ways that you can pay your vendors in this business. You can do a flat percentage, um, or you can pay per piece. It's more lucrative if you pay per piece. Like if I pay $2 for every type of hoodie, $1 for every type of shirt, $2.50 for every pair of pants, like that, you, you, know, you assign a value to a type of piece and you do it that way. That model was common because like you can only charge but so much for as a, when I charge my customer, you can only charge $7 for a pair of pants. And so therefore $2.50 made sense. However, the fact that I was in the film and TV industry, they were price insensitive they would pay $20 for a pair of pants. Like they paid a lot. So by me paying per piece and keeping them here, I, my margins were actually really, I had really high margins. And um, the vendors caught on that like, hey, John's charging 250, but he's actually making 20 off this. And I, I you know, went through a lot of lengths to, to obscure how much I charged because the film industry was... Uh, no one was servicing this industry. I was alone in this industry and I was 18 years old and I was taking everyone's lunch money. People didn't even really think about it. They didn't even really know where these productions were. I kept it tight to chest. Um, and so as a result, I was able to get a lot of margin. But one lesson that I've learned that if I would, could do that again, I would do a flat percentage split and have them make 40% of everything I made because transparency in the process with your stakeholders uh, increases goodwill. And goodwill is something that you can't put a price tag on that goes a long way that manifests itself in everything from quality to service to attention that you get and what have you. Um, so anyway, one, that's one big lesson that I learned is you can't buy goodwill. And in order to get goodwill, you have to lead with goodwill. And sometimes that means compromising on your margin short term 
and so that you can compound goodwill over the long term. And that yields immeasurable benefits down the stretch, financially and non-financially. And goodwill is very, it's very on point and accurate, right? Because at the end of the day, right, people do business with people that they, they like and that they trust. So it's a sense of like, you have to build that up as you're doing, um, you know, whatever for them. And then sooner or later, they're like, you know, I, could, I trust John. I'm gonna trust him with a bigger project now. Um, that kind of ties into like when, when everything just started, um, there's a sense of, you know, do you believe in a sense of, of luck or is it just a matter of showing up and the opportunity will present itself, right? And I, I ask that because we're talking about goodwill, goodwill and making meaningful connections. Um, what's your philosophy around that? We'll be right back. I know you all have big things that you're planning for this year. Let us help you in being your accountability partner. Uh, we're going to be able to check with you on a monthly basis with our new MAP subscription. We'll follow up with you constantly and stay on top of you to make sure that you execute these big goals you have in store. At the end of the day, we all can write down our goals. But if you're not accomplishing them, to be honest, it really doesn't matter. So to go to mydreambigclub.com for more information. I think that's a great question. Um, I used to not believe in luck, I would say. I used to say, yo, keep that luck shit in your pocket. You know, right place, right time, right place all the time. You know, and I believe that. I do believe that. Right place all the time, exertion of effort, you know, good attitude. But I also now believe in luck because I think I've been lucky. And I do think that... uh, I do think that fortune is a factor at play. Um, like, and I, and I quantify it in different ways. Like being born in this country is lucky. Being born at all is lucky. Um, being born in this time is lucky, in my view. Like it's the democratization of the access to the web and everyone's right here for free, pretty much. I think being born in a two-parent household is lucky. None of these things are deterministic though. Notice. It's not like if you got any one of these things, it means necessarily X. But I do think there there are definitely things outside of our own individual control that shape our hand. So that I think has to do with fortune. And then the rest has to do with boldness and opportunity and initiative and attitude and participation. Like the spirit of participation, some people don't really talk about this a whole lot, but like, I think that having the spirit of participation, like, yeah, yeah, I'll give it a shot. Yeah, I'll do this. Like so many people default to non-participation. They don't contribute. They don't, you know, activate your spirit that way. And, And you don't put out to the world who and what you are. And therefore you limit what comes back to you. And not even on spiritual stuff, although, although I do believe in a spiritual plane, but even like just plain and simple, like you go to a party, you don't speak to anyone, no one speaks to you. You might have someone that comes and speaks to you, but like if you go to a party, same party, and you speak to a lot more people, even though there's a percentage that won't speak to you, you'll increase the amount of people that speak back. And, you know, so that was the first example that came to mind, but like participating is a really, really, really big part. Um, so yeah, I believe in both. I think it's a nuance between fortune and and um, and boldness and participation. Yeah, participation is is, is key because uh, I mean a good example, and I'll relate it back is like when you like there's a networking event and there's people that are there. They're you know 
if you're coming by yourself, you're looking around like, oh, can I talk to him, her? Uh, you know, am I going to get that in? But it's funny, though, because everyone has that same type of notion because, I mean, obviously you're coming to meet people, but for whatever reason, that there's that hesitation. So tying that back into entrepreneurship, right? And when it comes to selling that product or making that cold call, whatever it may be, is that you have to just jump out and just just do it, right? Um, is there is there anything that you can think of, examples of, of getting people outside that shell of really just doing it because you have to participate. No participation is going to yield you nothing. So like, what can you tell 100%. Them? Yeah, man. I mean, I remember, uh, I would just say it's reps. Um, and you know, this is a common insight, but, but like, if I could contextualize it for my situation, um, I remember when I had just, 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 just started this little dry clean thing. And I, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of tools in my disposal, but I, what I was, was a doorman at the time. And so I, I kind of felt like I could relate to other doormen. So it's, it's more, it's like, you got to find what you have in your favor that you think you could, you know, use to your advantage. And it may not even seem like an advantage. In fact, it may not even be an advantage in a lot of people's point of view. But for me, the fact that I was a doorman made me feel like, all right, bet I could somewhat relate to the doorman. So then I remember printing my little cheap business cards and cheap flyers and going up with my cheap doorman suit. And uh, before I would go to work every day, I would dedicate a few hours to going and going into, into a building cold and trying to convince the doorman. And like, I was nervous to do that. I was nervous about it. Like the prospect of walking into a place and you know, you ain't got no reason being there. Like no one knows you. You don't even really know what you're going to say. And I found myself, I can remember being nervous and being like, fuck, I don't, I kind of don't want to do this. Like, because your intuition is going to, you're going to be scared and you're going to want to retreat from fear and just being like, all right, let me, let me just try it. And I would go in there. Hey, how you doing? And you learn like if I came up and opened up a certain way, it made people be alarmed. And, and then, so then you learn like, okay, bet that, you know, you, you can maybe stumble and get past it, but they might not be able to get past that initial alarming feeling. So it's like, all right, cool. Maybe not open that way. And then I would go and open up a different way. And then they would be like, yo, what are you trying to tell me? Hurry up, man. And be like, okay, I got to speed it up. And like the great thing about being in the city is you have a giant sea of volume. You can just, I can just go down a block stretch and just, try after try after try after try. And the quantity leads to the quality. People want to hold out for quality without really having put in the reps. Like you're not going to get there. And it was that feedback that started refining my pitch, my nuance. I could, I started being able to tell just by walking into a building who was going to be receptive, who wasn't, how I should adjust. And, and if I think about it, I've been doing that shit ever since. It's been 10 years now. So my ability to sell has evolved. What I'm selling has evolved and what I'm selling for has evolved. I'm no longer selling um, to get a dry cleaning customer. I'm selling, you know, uh, investors on, you know, back in my new company and I'm selling reinsurance providers on lending us reinsurance capacity so we could have, you know, their power, their backing to go into the market. And I'm also selling customers to buy from us, our auto policy. But I'm selling employees, uh, prospective employees to join us. And I'm selling, you know, and so 
the CEO is constantly selling. So that is a skill most certainly that you, that you have to nurture your capacity to do. And it comes via reps. The quantity leading to quality, that philosophy, when you were, you know, 18 or, you know, just starting out, was it something that you told yourself, hey, John, man, if you're really going to make it, you just have to do this? Or is it something where it's just a matter of like, I don't know, you just happened to, to fall into it or was it strategic in what you were doing? And the reason why I asked that is because I think that, that that quantity piece is missing from a lot of us. And even for myself, right? I found myself where it's just like, man, should I, should I make the call? Should I make the call? And sometimes you make it, nothing happens. Sometimes you make it, something happens. But it's like, you, you got you, you to gotta play right? You got to play in the game for, for you to score, right? So like, where does that come from? 100%. Um, I would say it was definitely less strategic. I think I've gotten, uh, I think that people prescribe strategy prematurely. You ain't got to be strategic when you start. For me, it was visceral. I need to survive. I had just gotten fired. I was out of school and like, and I had to help my parents with their bills. Like it's sell or die. And that touches on like how I led up, like a lot of the time that, that type of entrepreneurship is not always the case, but in our communities, it's often the case. It's sell or die. And I was sure as hell uncomfortable selling, but I was a lot more uncomfortable dying because I didn't try. It just was not going to happen. Now, if I tried and tried and tried and met no results, I mean, I don't know. That's a different story, but like, I wasn't going to hang up my hat because I didn't try. That was a, that is unnatural to me. I was like, nah, 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 nah. At, for as comfortable as, for, like you got to weigh the pains and gains, right? Like the, the pain is great, especially if you're new to this. The pain is exorbitant. It's like, oh, I'm uncomfortable. I, I could flop. The pain is great, but the potential, like what you're leaving on the table if you don't do it, if that's greater than the pain, if the gain is greater than the pain, then, then to me, the answer is clear, right? It's like, it's either go through this great discomfort, you know, I can't help moms out. It wasn't going to happen. Yeah, I guess in line with that, right, too, it's a matter of as you're going out and you're talking to the doorman, talking to people, they remember, right, what you're doing. And sooner or later, it's going to hit that like, what? So you need a dry cleaner? Yo, you need to holler at my boy, John. And it's a matter of the fact that, you know, you stay at top of mind to people so that they know that, you know, should this opportunity come, this is what you're doing. And I know you, you spoke, you spoke uh, about this in, in some of your uh, content where it's a matter of you have to, you have to make things like tangible and physical and at least put yourself out there to, to, to get something to, to roll, right? So um, in, in that essence, right, I think when, when we're working with, you know, entrepreneurship, but just even in our jobs, it's like we have to really figure out, you know, how, how are we going to show up? How are we going to show up today? Yeah, no, 100%. And one thing that I would like to add to that as well is it's very important. And this is a lesson I've been building upon and, and developing ever since. And that is it was never just it was rarely just one touch point that got the sale. Right. It was rarely I went into the dorm into the dorm building one time. It was, I went, and then the next day, I said, hey, man, what's going on? Hey, oh, it's you again. Hey, how you doing, man? Hey, listen, how you like your coffee, man? Oh, I like it light and sweet, you know. All right, cool, cool, cool. I'll be right back. Circle up with the coffee. Oh, shit, the next day with a coffee. Yo, what's good, man? You, Yeah, man, listen. Hey, how's your mom doing? Oh, she's good. All right, cool, cool, man. Yeah, listen, I'm still around. Yeah, I ain't got no business yet, but I'm working on it. All right, yeah, talk to you soon. 
Hey, what's going on? Hey, Jeff. Hey, Tom. Hey, you know, and just working on it. Work. And then eventually you go, I would, you can turn anyone from a non-believer to an evangelist. Fuck a believer. You can go from negative, not to neutral, but from negative to evangelist through touch points and repetition and nurturing of relationship. Um, and that is something that I did physically, but that is also something that I've now done digitally through content. Nurture and nurture and nurture and contextualize and share and share. And that ends up nurturing that trust that we talked about, but also that goodwill that we also talked about. And you end up building goodwill and it's synchronicity because, you know, a little a node of goodwill here might in mysterious ways connect with another node of goodwill there and be like, yo, you know, that? oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've, yeah, I worked with them on a project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, yeah, uh, my dream big club. Yeah, yeah, we worked with that. Oh yeah, I love that. And like, and then all these little individual nodes end up becoming tight knit. And you can end up with an infrastructure of support and enthusiasm, and that can launch any endeavor that you wish to grow. So I'm feeling a little poetic today, I guess, but um, a wax poetic, but uh, yeah, yeah, that's how I view it, man. And it's, it's been fun because I, yeah, I've done a, a, yeah, it's been fun to reflect on the old people have been over indexing on asking me for my early days. And it's been fun because I'm, you know, my acumen has greatly evolved since then, but but a lot of the lessons are actually the same. So it's a lot of fun for me. Lessons, the foundation, right? That's how the foundation is built. And as you continue to to progress, right? I mean, it just continues to just, I guess, just scale, right? And things that you're doing. Um, I, I do have to mention, right? I mean, so, you know, we've talked a lot about the dry cleaners. Uh, let people know that uh, you went ahead and, and you sold it for 1 million gross um, when you were 21. And then from there, you, you, you went on to, to do some work in, in New York where um, I think it was like more on like economic development where like developers brought you in um, or actually you, you sought them out. Like, hey, give me some free office space. This is what I want to do for the community. Um, and I want, I, want, I want to tie that back in because the things that you're saying is around you, you put yourself out there. So, so ladies and gentlemen, what he did is that he went into a community knowing that as you're a developers want to build up the community, right? The longer you stay, the better it is, right? So I did some economic development back in Michigan and, and you have incentives, right? Because at the end of the day, you want to attract jobs, you want people to live in your area. And what you were able to pull off, and I, and I say this because entrepreneurs are we're always trying to find a way where we can get off the space or reduce our, our expenditures. But you were able to sell them on like, hey, I can make this area better. Just give me some free office space. So, so talk about how like just finding those opportunities or how do you think about, hey, this is what I can do. Like, how do you really dive into how do I find that next opportunity? What's out there in front of me? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. And for me, in my view, um, I really think that um, I probably have a counterintuitive approach to this, but I think people try to, rightfully so, will take a rational view at your next move. I did this, therefore I should do that. And it's like a linear progression. For me, I've always been a, uh, I've always let my imagination be fully captured by something. And that's when I know that that's when I want to do a thing. Um, so for example, like, you know, my most 
my most recent venture that I did before Loop was Harlem Capital. Venture Capital, da, da, da. And I was also doing a lot of real estate. So I had seeded that out to the world. And I think people thought that when I stepped down from HCP that I would go and do a real estate thing. I thought that too. But um, but something else captured my imagination by in full. It's almost like falling in love. That's what it takes for me to, to decide that I'm going to go do a venture. Like You got to fall in love because otherwise it's hard to go through the pains of a relationship, you know? unless you're in love deeply. And so for anyone out there like looking, this is just my personal take. So, you know, use it with a great giant grain of salt, but I just really believe in being fully in love with your, uh, with what you're going to sink your time into. Like, think about that. It's your time. That's your, it's every day. It's going away right now. It's dissipating. Like this is our, this is like the, the currency that we've been afforded by being born and like what you apply it to grows. And so the greatest reverence you can pay really is honing, is bestowing your time upon something. And so if you're going to do it, doesn't mean you have to do it well. It doesn't mean, it just means let, let it capture your imagination. Um, so that's always been my compass, man. Um, and I'm glad that I've always listened to that because I've, made often the scarier decision. I dropped out of school. That was really scary to start a thing, you know, because it captured my imagination at the time. And when it stopped, I stopped. Then I started something else. And, you know, and then when I founded HCP and, and we grew it, and we raised $40 million and we did a lot of great work, but it stopped capturing my imagination. And then I made the scarier decision to step down and created space for something new. And I wonder, damn, what could take the place of HCP is colossal. Um, and, you know, something beautiful happens when you make space, when you're ready to make space. You know, you wait. And then here comes this thing that takes you all over again for a spin. And then it ends up being even greater than you ever thought it would or could be. And so, yeah, for me, company building is, is way more of an art than a science. It's way more from the heart than from the numbers. It's way more of a people thing than a numbers thing. It's way more of a goodwill thing than an ROI thing. Um, and that's really honestly how I roll. And I know it's probably not as popular or whatever, but like, that's what I think yields a winning result in the long term. Jazz over here talking to our soul, everyone talking to the soul, <laughs> the heart and soul. So I have to give you, I have to give you an opportunity to talk about your, your latest um, endeavor, which you just mentioned, uh, Loop which is insurance. And I am so excited about it. I want to see how, how you guys are crafting this because every single time it's time for me to pay, I'm paying a premium for my insurance and it keeps going up. And I'm just like, my driving record is great. Why is it going up? And I, I do have to mention this because I, I thought this was hilarious, but um, um, I was telling her, I was like, you know, I'd like to remove, remove my wife off my insurance. I know that just went up again because um, she has her own vehicle. She never drives my car. And they're like, you know, if you remove your wife, it's actually going to go up. I was like, what sense does that make? They say, well, you got the marital discount. So anyway, like talk about loot. So, you know what I'm saying? That, that's, I'm still upset about that because it just happened like a month yeah, ago. Yeah, I need this so clip. Talk about, <laughs> I need this clip. Talk about, <laughs> talk about loot. Talk about the AI, the telematics and how you guys are going to make me happier because I'm still a yeah, man. Um, uh, your experience is is very common across the board, and um, insurance is structurally biased. That's what it comes down to. When when 
when we took a look at how people are priced, like your price primarily based on your demographic data, like you're, you're penalized if you didn't, if you didn't go to an Ivy League, if you don't work a white collar job, if you're not married, if you don't own your home, if you're lower income, if you're fair credit, like, and all those things add up. And it's like, what does that have to do with how you drive? And I know it sounds like a trivial thing, but it's like, this is a colossal financial services industry. We're talking about a multi-trillion dollar industry. And even in private passenger auto alone, $256 billion of premium written annually. And so effectively what, what happens is like, if you're upper middle class affluent and live in like a rosy neighborhood, we know what that picture looks like, then you get the best rates. Everyone else is considered like a subpar customer. And the way insurance works is those really good rates are subsidized by people on the opposite end of the spectrum. So then when we took a look, like there are people that are unfairly categorized as high risk. Someone potentially like yourself, whom is like an otherwise good driver, you're, you know, regular dude, you know, you have a willingness to live upward, upwardly mobile, like you, you know, you're not here driving reckless, but you're being priced as such because of the way that insurance is priced. So we developed a technology that can completely remove all these antiquated criteria that we don't feel matter at all. And what we've done is we've quantified the risk of the roads. So we know historically which roads are likely to um, have car crashes on them. And then every customer downloads our mobile app loop and we can then understand how you drive and so we've determined that the, we only measure what matters, which is the roads you drive on and how you drive on them. And if you're a great driver, you're going to pay a great rate. It don't matter to us that like our rate filing, if you look at our insurance product, like we're gender inclusive. It don't matter to us if you're male or female. It don't matter to us what education you have. What's your occupation? Like for us, you should be priced more equitably. So that's what Loop is. And it's important too, like we're a vertically integrated insurance company. We're not like a broker that has a cool digital layer and then we sell you Allstate. Like we're thinking big here. Like we're creating our own insurance company. <laughs> we are in sh- we're handling the experience end to end. We completely control the user, um, the user experience, the UI, the UX, the acquisition of the customer, handling you, caring for you. We insure you. You're insured by Loop Insurance. Um, we handle the claims. We pay out the claims. And we're backed by giants. You know, we have uh, uh, reinsurers that give us the financial solvency. Um, and I think that we can really energize the community because our value proposition is not we're cheaper. It's, hey, this shit is messed up. So we took a look and turns out we don't got to use all this stuff that doesn't matter. And, you know, we can create better prices for you as a result. And I think consumers are ready for it, man. Uh, and we've had our wait list swell to several thousand in just a couple of weeks. And like the response has been really, really great. So I am very excited um, to have some representation in insurance because if the, if the system wasn't built by us, we can't expect the output to be considerate of us either. We are very ready. We are very ready. Let's and then go. on top of that, right? I'm not even done. Like, and, I, and I had another child and I'm like, I, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the most cautious drivers before why am I paying more now? Because 18, I wasn't, you know, you know, I would, I didn't have any kids. So right, right, right. life was different. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so anyway, congratulations, right? $3.25 million dollar seed that yes, you guys recently uh, closed on. Um, yes, sir. So the question I have is the wait list is there. When can we expect it? Um, yeah, well, insurance is regulated on a state by state basis. 
I wish it was federal because then you can get approved and be everywhere. But to make matters more complex, it's a state by state basis. Each state has their own department of insurance, state insurance commissioner, regulatory department and considerations. So we are going live in Texas first. We'll be, we'll be live in Texas in March. Shortly thereafter, we'll be live in Pennsylvania, Illinois, Ohio, New York. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, we'll continue our rollout, but definitely, definitely. I think the greatest way that folks can support is, um, heading over to loopinsure.co, joining the waitlist, telling a friend, letting folks know that, Hey, you know, empathy and insurance is a thing. Um, and, uh, and, you know, a much more equitable approach to insurance is, is coming for us, by us, you know, for us, by us. All right, John, I want to take you through a quick lightning round as we're coming to a close. Um, quick, whatever comes to your head. Uh, coffee or tea? Coffee. Easy. <laughs> Texting or talking? Texting. <laughs> Favorite day of the week? Thursday. Ask for permission or beg for forgiveness? Forgiveness. <laughs> uh, New York or Texas? New York. <laughs> all right. All right. New York, New York is the city we dream. All right, so John, leave us with some some words of encouragement, man. This has been this has been great. So, you know, talk yeah, to absolutely. us. You know, my dream big club. You you talked a lot about your dream, your uh, big dreams. So, leave us with some words of encouragement. Hundred percent, man. Um, well, yeah, uh, I think I think the encouraging thing, if I could look back at my thus far ten year journey, is that um, you can neutralize a really shitty hand with a lot of heart and a lot of work. Um, and that to me is the most encouraging thing that I can think of because you, you know, coming from a last name, coming from a zip code, coming from money in the bank can honestly seem like an advantage, but it's a propped up environment. And uh, having heart and having a lot of hard work goes way, way, way longer and further and is actually the only thing that wins uh, in the long run. So if you have a shit hand, um, I empathize. Um, I came from that. And just know that focusing on the non-quantitative things uh, is a lot more difficult to nurture and can seem unprofitable in the short term, but over the long term, leaves the biggest results. Love it, love it, love it. So here you have it. John, he is the man. He's doing great things. Um, as he mentioned, Raul, remember that Quantity leads to quality. Yes, Keep sir. it going. Keep doing what you're doing. It doesn't matter what hand you're dealt. You can make it happen because you have to show up. Keep showing up and great things will happen. John, we thank you very much for, for your words of encouragement and your advice. My brother. Thank you, man. Be well. I got to run. Peace. I can't wait for the final product. Take care. Dream big and never stop dreaming. But remember, dreams without action are just dreams and often lead to disappointment. So let's get to work. And thank you for listening to My Dream Big Club show. Please leave a review and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whichever podcast app you have. I'm your host, Sean Phillips. Take care. Take care.